Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Soho Radio Podcast, showcasing some of the best broadcasts from our online radio station, right from the heart of Soho, London. Across our music and culture channels, we have a wide range of shows covering every genre, along with chat shows, discussions and special broadcasts. Here is just one of our recent shows. To catch the full show, head to our Mixcloud page or listen live at SohoRadioLondon.com. And good morning. You're listening to Soho Radio, but more pressingly, this is Poptique, the only audio-only movie show that gives you a crash course through 100 years of film history, accompanied by a plethora of mighty fine music. Me, myself and I speaking to you right now is Matthew Richardson, your guide for the next 60 minutes if you're listening live on Soho Radio. God knows how long this will take if you're on the old listen back as this month's show is absolutely rammed to the rafters with a century's worth of cinematic anniversaries and classic musical cuts. For February 2023, I didn't reckon I'd have that much of significance to shout out to, but once I started sifting around for shiz, it soon dawned on me how terribly wrong I was. So stick around, because I've got a 100-year-old convict masquerading as a clergyman, a boy who wouldn't grow up, and a baby who grew up to be an original gangster. I've got a French comic legend and some forgotten females in their breakthrough performances. There's petite pachyderms on a promenade, marauding postmodern punks, and pissed up dramatis personae. You want more? I've got more. In the shape of one of the most legendary Hollywood producers, perhaps the most fondly remembered of all 1980s road trips, and a tune from one of the funkiest film soundtracks of the 1970s. That's all to come, though, as I fling you back 100 years through film history to February 1923, and we then take a brisk crawl back to the future, which, of course, is not the future at all. But today, if you're as confused as I already am, don't worry. I've got one of the finest ways possible we can begin this trip, and it's the short but sweet time walk by Bunny. At least I think it's pronounced Bunny. She's gone and left the U out of her name because it's 2023. And who needs you anymore? Well, I tell you who needs you. I need you. I need you to stick around because otherwise I'm going to be talking to myself for the rest of this godforsaken show. Released 100 years ago this month was Charlie Chaplin's film The Pilgrim, a short comedy, only about 40 minutes in length, but that was more than enough to pack in the crowds at the beginning of 1923, because at this point in time, Charlie Chaplin was pretty much one of the most famous figures in the whole flipping world. This was Chaplin's last short silent film. He'd been making movies for just under a decade, 
71 so far at this point, 69 of them short films and only two of them feature-length movies, and only one of them he had control over really, which was The Kid, released in 1921. Chaplin was still tied to an eight-picture deal he'd signed with a company called First National, which was later swallowed up by Warner Brothers. He was champing at the bit to get out of his contract and make a movie for his own company, United Artists, that he'd set up with two other pioneer blockbuster stars, Mary Pickford and her husband, Douglas Fairbanks. So it's no surprise that the theme of The Pilgrim is essentially that of escape, freedom and the sense of true identity. In the film, Chaplin plays an escaped convict who slipped his shackles, nabbed the clothes of a skinny-dipping clergyman and scarped off as far away as he can get, ending up in some dust bowl Texas town mistaken for a priest what they are expecting to arrive. It's interesting that twice in the past decade, when Chaplin was about to shake off a multi-picture contract with a film company, he chose the same setup of an escaped convict as his final film with them. Especially when you consider that during his poverty-stricken upbringing at the end of the 19th century, he and his older brother were sent to a Lambeth workhouse when Chaplin was just seven years old. That same building, the Lambeth workhouse, is now London's much-loved cinema museum, which includes lots of Chaplin items among its jaw-dropping collections. If you fancy checking out The Pilgrim from February 1923, it's up on YouTube in a very interesting version, where the domestic release of the film is displayed split-screen alongside the print supplied to European cinemas. At this point in time, the easiest method of worldwide distribution for silent films was to shoot two versions at the same time with cameras positioned side by side. This dual version of The Pilgrim is complicated further due to the fact that the domestic print of the film is something of a reconstruction that Chaplin himself put together for a re-release in 1959, complete with a score that he also composed, which you can hear in the background. We've got to move on up now, but if you want to learn more about Charlie Chaplin, and you should, since he's one of the most inspired, inspiring and influential figures in film history, there's a great documentary on him that was put out a few years ago by Peter Middleton and James Spinney entitled The Real Charlie Chaplin that I urge you to seek out. Likewise, there's the incredible Unknown Chaplin series from the equally incredible Kevin Brownlow, which I must have seen about a hundred times by now. And so to kiss 100 years ago behind or on the behind and to say happy birthday to Charlie Chaplin's The Pilgrim, his last silent short, I thought it was more than appropriate to play the Pilgrim Travellers with After While, especially as this year's February has been just as much fun as this year's January was. But hey, fear not, spring is on its way, and so is, hopefully, a brighter day. Oh, after while, after while, it'll all be over. After while, after while, sun will shine. Hey, after while, these clouds will pass over. We will shine. After while, well, sometime. Hey, we have shot forward ten years, and now we're in February 1933, 90 years ago. This month, you can hear in the background Ben Slevin and his orchestra. Should have been called the Ben Slevin 7. But anyway, you can hear Ben Slevin and his orchestra giving Irving Berlin's All By Myself a spin, which I'm playing as it features in one of the wildest and weirdest Betty Boop cartoons, Is My Palm Red? 
released in US cinemas back in February 1933. Also out in American picture houses in February 1933 was a very random musical called Hallelujah, I'm a Bum, made almost exclusively in rhyming couplets and starring Al Jolson. Hallelujah, I'm a Bum is not what you might think. It's not a movie about a man who wakes up one morning to find he is a singing pair of buttocks. It means a bum in the God bless American term for a tramp. It's a pretty mind-blowing experience, especially considering it sets out to celebrate the freedom of living that being homeless affords Jolson's character. It's made right smack dab in the middle of the Depression, when desperation was a day-by-day experience for many in the audience. It's very tonally strange. Interestingly though, when Hallelujah, I'm a Bum was released in UK cinemas, they had to retitle it Hallelujah, I'm a Tramp because everyone here knew that bum meant bums as in bottoms and supposedly someone actually had the job of scratching out the word bum whenever it was spoken on the soundtrack. So this film may be the one and only case in the whole history of cinema of having to employ a professional bum scratcher. Speaking of UK cinema, this month in 1933 saw the release of two breakthrough films of great import for two hugely popular female stars at the time. Two names that have kind of fallen off the radar now. One of those was Jesse Matthews in a film called The Good Companions, and the other was Anna Neagle in The Little Damozelle. Jesse Matthews, a big favourite of mine, was literally born around the corner from the Soho Radio Studios and grew up in a similar poverty-stricken background to Chaplin, although not quite as dramatic and Dickensian. And The Good Companions is a wonderfully quaint ensemble musical based on the J.B. Priestley book. It also featured musical comedian Max Miller and John Gielgud, not Sir John back then, just plain old John, as a very camp romantic lead. I think he even sings a couple of songs in the film. That's worth seeing in and of itself. The Anna Neagle film, I'm going to briefly mention, The Little Damozel, where she wears an eye-popping art deco outfit designed by Doris Zin Kisen. I think that's how you pronounce her name. You can't see that at all, because it's a lost film. Not totally lost, because bizarrely, the BFI have reportedly still got the opening titles for it in their archives. But aside from that, this 90-year-old film, The Little Damozel, has completely disappeared off the face of of the earth and no trace of it beyond photos and supposedly the title sequence exist. Except, wouldn't you know it, doing a search on YouTube the other day I found a very crackly 78 RPM that was available during its initial London engagements this month, 90 years ago, as a promotional push. It's actually got a couple of songs from the film, which you're going to hear in a second, but not from the actual soundtrack. And very oddly, there is also a snatch of dialogue from it as well, which I'm not entirely sure is from the film either. To be honest with you, I completely doubt that it's from the film. So, to celebrate a film that you'll never get to see, assuming you'd want to see it in the first place, here is literally all that's left from the little damozel for us great unwashed to enjoy. And I use the word enjoy in the most liberal way imaginable. Lovely Anna Neagle, whose picture you see on this record, is giving us the finest performance of her career in the new British.
was the Coasters, with their version of Brazil, also known as Aquela do Brasil. And when I say version, I mean version, as supposedly there's well over 440 different takes on that particular track, which was internationally popularised by its inclusion at the end of Walt Disney's Saludos Amigos, which went on general release in US cinemas 80 years ago this month. It follows on from last month's shout-out to Donald Duck's De Fuhrer's face in that Saludos Amigos was also a US government-sponsored exercise, this time part of the Good Neighbor policy where North America culturally reached out to South America, saying, hey, don't pay any attention to all those nasty fascists out there in Europe. Come and hang with us. We're your buds. Also released in February 1943, not at cinemas, but into the world from previously residing in their respective mother's wombs, were a couple of interesting personalities in the history of cinema. Firstly, the actor Joe Pesci of The Home Alones, Lethal Weapons, and all those eye-popping performances in Martin Scorsese movies like Raging Bull, Goodfellas, Casino, and most recently, The Irishman's. Joe Pesci is amazing in all of them, and I seriously considered playing you a track from him, since Pesci has released a bunch of recordings over the years, starting with a 1969 album of covers, including, I think, at least two Beatles covers on there, maybe even three, entitled Little Joe Sure Can Sing. He sure can, but not on this show today. Secondly, someone else of a musical nature, George Harrison of the Beatles, was born in February 1943. Aside from his Beatles films, A Hard Day's Night, Help, Yellow Submarine, Let It Be, and yada yada yada, Harrison made a very significant mark on British cinema via his company Handmade Films, which was created to get Monty Python and the Holy Grail produced, simply because he wanted to see it. He wanted to go to the cinema and see that film, so he stumped up the cash. The same peeps, Handmade Films, also produce such classics as Time Bandits, The Long Good Friday, and a particular film which we'll get to once we reach 1988. If you're wondering what the heckles I've been playing in the background, it's a version of Second Star to the Right from the Walt Disney production of Peter Pan, which premiered 70 years ago this month in Feb 1953. This version you're hearing is by Dee Fisher from his 1957 album, Echoes of Disneyland. It's the perfect soundtrack for being stalked in an abandoned Disney park by an unhinged homicidal fugitive dressed up as Captain Hook. The film itself was a long gestating project for Disney. He'd had a version of the story in development from the late 1930s as a possible follow-up to Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. Most importantly for the Disney company, Peter Pan introduced one of its most enduring corporate icons, that of Tinkerbell, who was supposedly based upon Marilyn Monroe, they reckon. Where would the world be without all those gazillion plastic products with Tinkerbell's slightly confused face slapped all over them? And speaking of confused and enduring icons, February 1953 also saw the debut of Monsieur Hulot, the hapless comic creation of French comedian Jacques Tati, who was very much definitely influenced by Chaplin, along with a whole bunch of other silent comedians. 
Hulot made his first outing in Les Vacances de Monsieur Hulot, Monsieur Hulot's Holiday, released into French cinemas 70 years ago this February. This immediately made me want to play Quel Tombe Il. How is the weather in Paris? The theme from that Monsieur Hulot film, which I just mentioned, from composer Alain Roman. But now I'm going to play you a track from a figure who has just reached the grand old age of 65 this month. You'll never guess who it is until you hear it and then, then you'll know who it is. played yourself performed by Tracy Lauren Marrow who of course is better known by his professional name Ice-T. So Ice-T was born on the 16th of February in 1958 and turned 65 years old this month. Not only does that track feature a sample from a soundtrack we'll be celebrating later in the show but Ice-T himself has made a solid contribution to the silver screen over the years making his debut in Breaking in 1984, I think. Plus, he was also in Breaking 2, Electric Boogaloo, New Jack City, Trespass, Johnny Mnemonic, and, most memorably of all, perhaps, he played a mutant kangaroo man in 1995's big-screen adaptation of Jamie Hewlett's Tank Girl comic books and the graphic novels. What? I hear you ask. Has the music you're hearing in the background got to do with Ice-T? Well, I'll tell you. It's absolutely nothing whatsoever, as I am playing it to commemorate 60 years since Federico Fellini's masterpiece, Eight and a Half, was released into Italian cinemas. Otto e mezzo, to give it its Italian name, is a dissection of the creative process, or lack thereof, from a creator suffering from a creative block. We've all been there, but rarely so rawly and indeed so creatively as in Eight and a Half, with its fantastic score by Nino Rota, that we're hearing now, all with such effortless charm, as the leading man, Marcello Mastroianni, looking laconically over the top of his sunglasses at such astounding actresses as Claudia Cardinale, Anukami, and Barbara Steele, who all appear in the film. I'll be honest though, I've not actually seen Eight and a Half for donkey's years, but it's one I keep meaning to rewatch, and I'll get around to it one of these days. <laughs> Two films I've not seen in a goodly while, which I'll definitely try to avoid rewatching if I come across them, also came out in February 1963 in UK cinemas, one of which featured the original version of the tune you're hearing right now. The first of these, Summer Holiday, the Cliff Richard and the Shadows rock and roll musical to end all other Cliff Richard and the Shadows rock and roll musicals. That went out on general release this month, 60 years ago. I guess one thing we could all do with in February is a summer holiday, and this was probably a contributing factor in the film being the second most popular release in the UK in 1963, only beaten by the second James Bond movie, From Russia With Love. 
but move over Sean Connery's because Cliff Richard was voted by the UK exhibitors as their star of the year for 1963, and that's something to ponder on. Uh, it's mad to think that a week before Summer Holiday went on release nationwide, the Beatles, which we've already talked about, were gathered in Abbey Road, recording their first album, Please Please Me, in the space of a whole day, which would pretty much wipe away the clean-cut 50s Americana hangover Cliff Richardy type acts and usher in the way the 60s were going to be heading henceforth. But the track you're hearing is not from Summer Holiday, but instead from a film called Hatari. Not Atari, as in the console, but Hatari, an American film that went on general release the same day as the Cliff Richard musical. The tune is Baby Elephant Walk, performed here by the Tokyo Scar Paradise Orchestra, originally composed by Henry Mancini for the John Wayne Howard Hawks African Western Hatari, where Wayne basically swapped poking cows for a swinging safari. A very odd timepiece of a film, Hatari, since it's supposedly a fun family royster-doyster romantic comedy about a guy who runs a farm in Africa that hunts down wild animals and flogs them to zoos and circuses. So think of that next time you hear this quite over-familiar piece of music being used as a backing track somewhere. Morricone's theme to Four Flies on Grey Velvet, or if it's Italian title, Quattro Mosh Veluto Ghio. I reckon that's it. Released 50 years ago in Italian cinemas in February 1973. It's used in the title sequence for that film, and what a deeply unsettling title sequence it is, too, featuring a proggy rock group practicing and wailing. Can you hear the wailing? And abruptly cutting back and forth to a black background with a big, gory, bloody, beating heart on it. What the rest of the film is like, I can't tell you, as I am far too blooming squeamish to get that far into an Italian giallo horror movie. They are very popular with a certain crowd, but they just freak me out too much with their combo of bright red gore, outlandish 70s fashions, creepy atmosphere, and admittedly very funky themes, most of them from Ennio Morricone. But if you want a funky theme from a film that I have seen, and I'll be honest, the film isn't really that worth seeing, then check out this stone-cold classic I'm now going to play from the godfather of soul himself, because in February 1973, 50 years ago this month, US cinemas were no doubt shook to their very core by James Brown's awe-inspiring soundtrack to Black Caesar. Brother, can I borrow a thin brother, you know, a dime? Oh, 
version of the evergreen Turkish Anatolian rock classic Gerdut by Ozdemir Erogan, which was recorded for the soundtrack to Kopela Krali, the king of the street cleaners, starring Kemil Sunil, who again is another comic performer very much influenced by Charlie Chaplin and his tramp characterization. He'd scored a hit two years previous in 1976 with King of the Doormen, and here he was back in 1978 with King of the Street Cleaners. The composer, Ozdemir Oregan, as I say, one of the most legendary figures in the Anatolian rock genre, and a massive influence on one of my favourite current bands, Alton Gun. They have gone on record as saying the vocal version of Gerda is the most inspiring song what they've ever heard. If I'd have had time on this show, I would have now whacked on an Alton Gun track just to show how inspired they were. But unfortunately, we're already running way behind schedule and there's something else I need to play you that's completely different from 1978. So let me just whack up the old volume on the instrumental version of Gerdak from the February 1978 release into Turkish cinemas, King of the Street Cleaners. Adam and his aunts with Deutsche Girls from the soundtrack to Derek Jarman's Jubilee, released 45 years ago in February 1978 in that punk-tastic timepiece of a film, Queen Elizabeth I, not the second, the first, is bonged forwards 40 years, not 40 years, 400 years, and pops smack dab into the middle of a grim, grungy, gunky, gross, dystopian, not-so-great Britain, populated by scuzzy punks smashing up greasy spoon cafes, evil music impresarios, and punk personalities such as Jordan, Little Nell, Toya, Wilcox, The Slits, smashing up a car like a Street Fighter 2 bonus level, Adam and his aunt, who you just heard, with the aforementioned Deutsche Girls. It's another film I haven't seen for donkey's years, so I can't really tell or remember much about it other than it's a quite unsettling experience throughout. This film featured Brian Eno's first film score, although what you're actually hearing now from the soundtrack is not Brian Beano, but is Amilcar with Wargasm in Porntopia. Vivian Westwood, the queen of the punk movement, she wasn't a fan, especially because supposedly the character Jordan plays, Amil Nitrate, is kind of inspired by Westwood herself, let's be honest. Not the most flattering portrayal. She had a crack at the movie and its misrepresentation of the punk ethos by producing an open letter to Derek Jarman having a go at him on a t-shirt that you could go to her sex shop and buy so you could walk around wearing her angry letter of complaint to Derek Jarman. That's a very original way of having a go at somebody. On the open letter t-shirt, Westwood wrecks that jubilee was the most boring and disgusting film she'd ever seen. Jarman had already accused the doyen of the punk movement as someone who was simply in the business of packaging and selling fake street credibility. 
and when Westwood received an OBE from the Queen in 1992 for her services to British fashion, he had another right go at her in his diaries, calling it a medal of betrayal and snippily likening her to a woodworm in his dresser. Meow. Thank you.